We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning this morning, and I'll take the opportunity to say an early Merry Christmas to all since we're having our Christmas program today and looking forward to it very much. But we have an hour of our own uh, worship here as a church family before we get to the outreach part of it this afternoon. Looking forward to the uh, special music that we'll have in this service as well. Give these fellows another minute to make their way to the back. While they're doing that, if you wouldn't mind, turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah and the ninth chapter. Actually, you know what I'm going to do first? I'm going to follow the program, and I'm going to do the reading, which is just before Isaiah. So if you're on your way to Isaiah, just make your way over to Song of Solomon, and we'll read the fifth chapter here. This chapter kind of mirrors uh, real life in that you have the um, joy of anticipation, a young man and a young woman of being married, And then they're married, and uh, you have the highs of that, and you have some of the lows of that, because uh, marriage just isn't all romance, now is it? Uh, You've all found that out. Um, So let's uh, read chapter 5, Song of Solomon. It says this in the opening verse, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. And then the Shulamite speaks of a troubled evening. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. She, this is her replying. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. I rose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but... My beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am love sick. What is your beloved? More than another beloved, O fairest among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? So now she's gotten into an argument with dear hubby and uh, he's gone away 
she's searching for him, trying to get him back. And she tells her friends, hey, help me find this fellow. And they're like, well, what's so special about him? Well, listen to what she says. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem." So she has aptly described her love, and we'll find out how they find him later. All right, Isaiah chapter 9, if you would please, in verse 6. We won't be here the whole time. In fact, we'll actually get here more toward the end of the message in a few minutes. But I, I kind of puzzled over what to do today. I uh, just kind of opened that out to you because normally we go on a series, and I'm in you know Genesis now, and... The next chapter would be chapter 17, but I didn't think it really fit for me or for you today to speak about chapter 17. You know what chapter 17 is about? No, because I haven't told you yet, right? And you, haven't, you don't remember, but it's about the uh, sign of circumcision uh, that Abram was given, uh, which, you know, does come up in Luke's gospel in chapter 2 with our Lord even, but it uh, just didn't seem to be fitting for today, and I wanted to think about some things that I might also use this afternoon or allude to in my message, a brief message this afternoon at the end of the program. But I thought about approaching it this way. It's a little study, kind of a topical study that I wanted to do for a while, and I spent some time on it, uh, about different notable sons in the Bible. History, I say in my notes here, is punctuated by the presence of certain individuals. And what I'm thinking there is if you go through the long span of history, there are millions and even billions of souls, but most of them never make the history books. Their names don't appear. But there are individuals who punctuate history, very significant individuals. Some of them you're thinking back in your history classes and U.S. history or world history, European history, uh, that you are thinking just now, ancient history that rose to the level of prominence, emperors and warriors and so on. Uh, movement people. The Bible's no different because it is a book of history. It's not a book of myths. It's not a book of stories. Although sometimes we call them Bible stories, we should call them Bible history, Bible actuality. Uh, there are particular people called out in the pages of Holy Scripture that are outsized in importance compared to the normal Joe. You know some of their names, the King David and Solomon and many of the others over the course of time. And these men are hinges upon which history turns, and some women too. A select few, even of those, rise to the top for my purposes this morning in this sense because their births are surrounded by unique circumstances. For example, Ishmael. You remember Ishmael. We talked about him last week in Genesis 16. The Bible says, You shall bear a son 
to Hagar, you shall call his name Ishmael, which, remember, means heard by God or God hears. That's in 1611 of Genesis. He's the progenitor to many who dwell today in the Middle East. Think of the circumstances surrounding his birth. Uh, He was born to a surrogate mother, basically, trying to have a child for her elderly mistress because she couldn't have children. And this is just one of several examples that I'll share with you whereby God really, in a sense, put to the test his people to see if they would trust him with regard to one of the most basic and important issues of life. Can I have children? And can those children then carry on the family name? And more than carry on the family name, can they do so not only with honor and dignity, but can they do so in the face of, say, the Abrahamic covenant, which needs to have a a generation, followed by generation, followed by generation. And if there is no offspring, the Abrahamic covenant will be done. It will be finished. There will be no more descendants to fill the promise that God made to Abram that your descendants will be like the sand of the sea and like the stars of the heavens above for number. And so God used these circumstances to test people's faith, sometimes making them wait a long time, sometimes giving them a child well into their advanced years to show that the the power was of God and not of us. You know, if we think, well, we're just going to, you know, if you're a newly married couple, we're just going to have the family. We're planning to have two or three or four or five or six kids. Well, you think you are until you realize maybe you can't do that. Maybe you don't have the physical capacity to do that. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's some genetic thing. Maybe there's some injury that you've sustained. Maybe mom has too high of a risk in, in carrying a child and it won't work out. You just don't know before you begin to start a family about these matters. And so you have to trust God. But many people don't trust God. They trust themselves, their own strength, their own cleverness. They trust uh, in vitro fertilization or the fertility clinics. We've got to trust God, my friends. In every area of life, if we have to trust God in those kinds of areas of life, then we must trust God in all the other areas of life, right? And so that's what God is teaching these ones over the course of history. Another one is Isaac, one of the Jewish forefathers through Abram. The Bible says, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. That's in Genesis 17. Mom could not have children at her age, so it seemed. I mean, by the time she had the child, she was, well, what was she? Well, into her 80s or 90 or something like that. Uh, Amazingly advanced age. Or think of Samson, the strong man, hero of Israel. Now there was a certain man from Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. This is in Judges 13. And his wife was barren and had no children. You see the common thread here? All these women are too old to have children or can't have children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. And here's the explanation. For the child shall be a Nazarite from the womb. You remember about the Nazarite vow? A special vow of consecration or dedication to the Lord where no haircut, no honey, no fruit of the vine, um, you know, no touching dead bodies, those sorts of things to keep oneself pure. Samson was supposed to be one of those. 
It wasn't just that the power was in his hair. When it was cut off, he lost his power. Why? Because he did not keep the vow that had been made before his birth to trust in God and to be God's man. That's where the power, why the power left him, why the strength left him. So no, no razor was to come upon his head. He was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. That's a selection of verses from Judges 13. I ran them all together so we wouldn't read the whole chapter. But the wife of Manoah was barren and had borne no children up until this point. So there's a third of children, Ishmael, Isaac, Samson in the scriptures uh, who were brought along by God in, in uh, f- trust and faith in him. During the time of silence from God to the nation, 1 Samuel uh, chapter Chapters 1 through 3 tells us that the word of God was rare in those days. Indeed, it was. God had been silent during the early years of the book of Samuel, the judges, of course, during some of the times there. But God brought a son through Hannah and Elkanah. The Lord, it says, had closed her womb. But she made a vow. Remember, she was the one that was found at the temple. Eli saw her praying and thought that she was drunk. But she was pouring out her heart to God in prayer, asking God to give her a son. And she said uh, to the Lord, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and do not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. Okay, we don't need to go back and review that. We know that's the Nazarite vow. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name, hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Shemuel, just like Ishmael. God heard her prayer. God heard me. You ever wonder if God hears your prayers? Now, well, he knows what you're praying. Sometimes your prayers might be hindered. If you're praying just for selfish reasons, why certainly. But I trust that you know the joy of God hearing and answering your prayers. I do, and I trust you do too. Not all the time. I wish God uh, would answer my prayers more often (laughs) the way that I think they should be answered. Because I know everything, right? I mean, I know the best, you know, all the... I know a thousand chess moves down and everything, how it's going to turn out and everything. Well, not really. God knows all of that, so we have to trust him. Sound familiar? Called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. For Samuel 1.20. Samuel turned out to be a very significant man of God, even from his early youth, prophesying under God to Eli the priest, who was far advanced in age compared to him. Just a tremendous story if you read 1 Samuel chapter 3 and following. Or what about John the Baptist? Another born of a mother beyond her years for childbearing, Luke 1.7 very sensitively says that uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were uh, well advanced in age. King James, I think, says that they were well stricken in years. I kind of like that translation, even though I don't think they were stricken, really, but you know what I mean. Uh, The angel said to Zacharias in the temple, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. 
See, they were praying for a son too. They just didn't know who this man would be. For your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, that was an odd name for that family because there was no John in their immediate family, nobody to name him after, but he had a name given by God, John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. See, the longer they had to wait for a child, the greater the rejoicing, right? I mean, if you're, you get married and, you know, 12 months later, you've got a bouncing baby in your arms, well, like, who cares? Not that who cares. It's like, well, that worked out well. That was easy enough. But if you've waited for years and years and years trying to have a child and you've asked your church family to pray for you to have a child and, and then one comes along, the rejoicing is greater because the waiting was longer and the time was more difficult. The trial was deeper. I think that's what God does with us with, uh, in the world, the problem of evil the difficulties that we face, the struggles and the trials, all will make it more sweet when we recognize that the the weight of affliction that we bear now is nothing in compared to the weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. And so, yes, God does allow us to suffer long, but I believe that will only increase our gratitude and our thanksgiving to him when he brings rest to our souls forever and ever. John the Baptist, it says, many will rejoice. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. You know why that is? Nazarite vow again. Yep. These special men punctuating world history, especially in the Jewish nation, dedicated to God. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's what it means when he says that he's come to make his paths straight, to level the rough places and to bring down the mountains and to make straight a highway for our God. He's not talking about road construction. He's talking about heart building. He's talking about repentance. That's what his job was, to bring people to repentance. You know, sometimes you might have seen a a bumper sticker that talks about, you know, only the naughty people have gotten into the history books. Have you seen one like that before? Well, I'm here to tell you, in God's history book, it's the good people that make the difference. So don't think you have to get out of line to make a difference. You get in line. You get in this kind of line, and you can make a difference for God. You might not be famous, but you might be well-respected and, and uh, greatly revered in your family and in your church and in your community when you do that which is right. Some are not so famous or significant in Bible history, but are remarkable nonetheless. Some sons. Consider the poor Shunammite woman who regularly offered hospitality to Elisha. and it, In fact, it became so regular that she told her husband, look, I want to build a guest room for him so that whenever he comes by, he can just stay there. He can rest, he can sleep, spend the night, and whatever. What a, what a generous, benevolent woman that she was. And so Elisha wanted to give her a gift and thanks for her kindness, but, but she didn't request anything. That's the kind of woman that she was. She was selfless. She wasn't in it looking out for herself, but... 
Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, had no, knew about the background of the situation, and he explained to his master that she has no son, and her husband is old. So he called her, and Elisha said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now, I'm sure she probably found that a little hard to believe. I don't know if she laughed like Sarah did, but she did indeed have that joy of having a son. But a few years later, while still in his youth, the young boy was out with his father in the fields, and something happened to him, I'm not sure what, maybe a stroke or something, and he died. He died, complained about his head hurting. They took him home, and he died that day in her arms. But Elisha returned and raised the boy from the dead. Tremendous account. He, uh, in a sense, kind of gave a gift twice, didn't he? The birth and a rebirth, as it were. The most famous of all, however, of the sons born this way is this one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, there's a unique circumstance, isn't there? And she'll call his name Emmanuel. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here again from Matthew, quoting Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. This is indeed a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. We're not talking about a young woman who is a virgin who gets married and has a child the normal way. There's nothing remarkable at all about that. World history is full of that. Our lives are full of that. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent, his, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, Isaiah 9, 6, where I asked you to turn earlier, says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just a note on that, kind of a technical note, if you look at that verse carefully. Your Bible may have wonderful separated from counselor by a comma. I don't think that's right. I think it should go together. So we have a, a wonderful counselor. A magnificent advisor is really what it means. When you think of counselor, think of, think of a, a governmental advisor. Think of Daniel advising Nebuchadnezzar or Joseph advising Pharaoh or some high-level official in the United States government advising the president on some matter of foreign policy or, or economic policy. That's the kind of counselor we're talking about. A mighty God, he is everlasting father and prince of peace. I just want to talk a little bit about this son, capital S-O-N, who was given. And, and first of all, just mention that this son has a, he really is a son in more than one way. He has a dual sonship, kind of like dual citizenship. He is a son humanly of Mary and Joseph by our common reckoning that a male offspring, of one who is the fruit of the womb, is the son of his mother. No matter in this case that he was conceived in a miraculous fashion, it's still the case that uh, he was raised by his mother. He was born 
by his mother, and such as such he is completely human, completely human. But Jesus is also son in terms of the relationship that he sustains with God the Father. He is the son of the highest, Luke one thirty two tells us that. He is the son of the highest, and the throne of his father David he will have, uh, the Bible says there, and the Benedictus I think it is, Uh, of Luke chapter 1, and he's the Son of God. Dozens and dozens of verses tell us that he is the Son of God. What does this mean that he is the Son of God? Well, he's always been the Son of God. In, In this unique kind of sonship, he shares all the characteristics of deity with the Father and with the Spirit, by the way. There is no way in which Jesus is unlike the Father. In other words, in every way, he is just like the Father, yet he is a distinct divine person from the Father. This is the basic teaching of the Trinity that we've come to understand throughout church history from the Scriptures. A very clear statement here in Isaiah 9-6 that really you can't get around. You can try to do a lot of gymnastics to work around it, uh, exegetical gymnastics or theological gymnastics, but when it says that he is a, a child is born, a son is given, and his name is called Mighty God, the Adonai Gibor, from which we get the name Gabriel, he is the Mighty God. There's no way around that, my friends. Neither this other phrase right after it, the Everlasting Father. He is the Father to eternity. That is a name, and by the way, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the name expresses that which is his inherent reputation, that is his inherent character. So just like he is a son of Mary, that, he, that is he partakes of humanity, he is a son of God, which means he partakes of deity. Are you with me? Okay, son does not mean subordinate, it does not mean somehow springs into existence in this context. God has given... See, we think, it, we think about everything in reverse because we're fleshly bound. We think, okay, I know what a son is because I am a son and I've had sons, so I've got it all down. So I'm going to say, Jesus is like that. No. He is the Son of God And our sonship relationships among humans is like that ultimate sonship. A smaller picture of it. My sons have some likeness to me and I to my father. Well, that likeness is exact when it comes to God the Father and God his Son. He is the exact image. He is the express representation, the stamp of God the Father. He is the, the glory of His radiance. Hebrews chapter 1 in the early verses tell us all about this. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily? You say, is there anything too hard for God? Could God, infinite God, dwell in a man? Well, He did. So this is why we call Jesus both Son of Man and Son of God. So he has a dual sonship, okay? Dual sonship. 
He became the Son of Man to learn the afflictions of humanity. You know, he knows how you're afflicted. He's been here and done that personal experience. He became also the Son of Man to be sympathetic to us. He's a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 4 tells us. The previous I alluded to is Hebrews 5. He became a Son of Man to give us a model for how to live amidst suffering. Remember 1 Peter tells us that he suffered, leaving us a model or footsteps for us to follow. That's 1 Peter 2.21, in the midst of suffering. Who suffered more than him? Who suffered more than Christ? Who unjustly suffered more than Christ? Certainly nobody. Somebody might be able to say, well, I can tell you an example of somebody who suffered more, more horrors and afflictions in the physical body, and I could be, I could be convinced, certainly. Probably not too hard to be convinced, actually. But somebody who suffered unjustly, who didn't deserve it, and died because of that. Hard to find an example like that because it's unique. He became the Son of Man in order to die for our sins. He became Son of Man to rise from the dead. How can God die? Well, God indwelling a human body can die. How can he rise from the dead? Well, he has to have a human body. He remains the Son of Man to rule as perfect mediator over God's earthly domain. In Psalm 8, the Bible tells us that God made man a little lower than the angels, but he's crowned him with glory and honor and put him over the works of his hands. That was Adam and Eve initially, but they fell. And so Jesus, the second Adam, has to come to take up his place, Adam's place, to actually carry out the mission of humanity, to be the steward over God's creation, and he will be the perfect mediator between God and men and the mediator over God's earthly domain. He also became son of man to demonstrate submission to the Father. You want to know about submission? Well, look in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. And so it is with you. He taught us by that model by that example what it means for us to submit to one another paul tells us you know wives submit to your husband every one of you submit to one another younger submit to your elders submit to your government submit to your god you know humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god and he will exalt you in due time submit yourself under him and he will take care of you but so many people don't want to do that because they're intellectually superior they think than God, which is ridiculous. Who is more powerful, more knowledgeable, more wise than God? Now, Jesus was not always a man. He was not always, you could say, the son of man because he took upon him human nature and a body, but he always was the son of God. He had to be the son of God. Why? Well, I've given you reasons why he became the Son of Man, but why was he the Son of God and he came that way? Well, he had to be Son of God to absorb the infinite punishment for our sin. But Jesus has, in a sense, more than dual sonship. I'll call it a fourfold sonship. Or maybe I could say three, but give me some rope. He's also, the Bible says, the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 1, in the opening verses of 
the synoptic writer, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is a fourfold sonship. He's a son of man, he's a son of God, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. Now, when it says that he's the son, and repeatedly throughout the Gospels, you'll see that he's mentioned to be both the son of David, like the blind men. Several times you have blind men calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me! Or the son of Abraham. Remember, I think I skipped over this very interesting uh, verse somewhere here that I have quoted that uh, even the demons knew who he was. We know who thou art, the Holy One of God. What have you done? Come here to torment us before the time, the demons said. The one said that he was, recognized him as indeed the Son of God. But he's the son of David, the, uh, the son of Abram. So son speaks of relationship. When he's the son of man, he's related to humanity. When he's the son of God, he's related to deity. If he's the son of David, what does that mean? He's related to royalty. He's related to royalty. He's the son of David. When he's connected to Abram, he's the son of Abraham. What is he? He's related to the Jewish nation. He's not just ethnically a Jew, but he's a royal Jewish man. In his humanity, the descendant of Abraham through David, and thus owns the regal right to the throne of Israel as her king. That's who he is. That's who he is. And in fact, I could carry the study on a little bit and show you in Isaiah, in, uh, in Isaiah Psalm 89, how the king of Israel is, is expressed as the son of God the Father. And that's a common kind of uh, metaphor, if you will, the sonship with the king and, and the father. He shares likeness not only of humanity and deity, but also royalty. He is the ultimate son of promise. And so back to Isaiah 9 again in chapter 9, verse number 6, you have the, the text we read, and then it's followed by verse number 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, and to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And how do we know this will happen? Well, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He is the light that's coming amidst the dark gloom that historically has been over the nation of Israel. And if you look in the earlier verses of chapter 9, you'll see about the kind of gloomy situation, the distress that they were in, uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, heavily oppressed by the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And the Bible says that he has multiplied the nation and increased its joy. And so you have a kind of gloomy situation into which the Lord plops the Son of God and sends him, the Prince of Peace, into a place of great oppression to rescue the nation. He's that light that comes amidst the darkness. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who walks by me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The oppressor will cease. The coming 
child, the Messiah, will clean up after the enemy. And that's why it says his government will have no end. He will establish it. He will order it. He will organize the nation. The Bible says, again, in the initial phrase, a child is born, a son is given, basically saying the same thing. And you say, well, that sounds fine. That's a natural explanation would suffice, but not for long because of the titles that are given to him. He has marvelous wisdom. In the multitude of counselors, there's, there is safety. Remember that from Proverbs? In this counselor, there is all wisdom. Wise counsel is sought by the world's leaders, but this one's counsel will be unsurpassed. He's also the Sar Shalom, that is the Prince of Peace. Now, somebody could say, well, that might be a, a, a Jewish man, you know, a guy, a regular person. But that's so unlikely given the current conditions of the world. No man is going to be able to bring peace unless he's supernatural in a, in a, kind, of a, a kind of twisted way. The Antichrist will do that for a while, but then the real Christ will bring world peace for sure. The other two names given to this child in the verse are so unmistakably connected to deity that there's no way that we can get around it. You can try to say there's God the Father and then there's some person that God designated to be the Son or some, some, some Aryan kind of heresy, but it doesn't work because the Bible is clear. The Son who is given, the child who is born is called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. Do you believe the Bible or do you take human wisdom above the Bible? Well, here's the, what the Scripture says, and I'm willing to say that I'm dumber than the Bible. God knows what he's talking about. He inspired the text by the Spirit of God working through Isaiah to write this down to tell us that this one, this one who, if we put the dots together, is a servant, a Messiah who is coming, the Anointed One, he is the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father. The given son, the born child, is the mighty God and the father who is everlasting. He partakes of both of those qualities. It's unmistakable in the text. We can't get around it. He is God. I mean, why does, why does Isaiah say that, that this virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name God with us? I mean, can you say that of any man? No, some arrogant men have suggested that of themselves. Caesars and emperors and pharaohs that think they're gods on earth. They're dead. They're not God. This one is God. He will have unending power in Israel. And even beyond the borders of Israel, he will have limitless power. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And listen to this. You know, this is kind of the, verse 9 is the well-known lowly entrance of the Lord and, and, uh, into Jerusalem. But notice verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. I mean, all it will take is a word from the Lord. Settle down. 
and the world will settle into total peace. Because if it doesn't, he will smash them with a rod of iron. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We conclude by reminding ourselves of a portion in the Gospel of the Romans, we'll call it, Romans chapter 1. And in those opening verses, Paul kind of summarizes this matter of the Son by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel which he promised before through the prophets and the scriptures. We just read some of those. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit. How? By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Through him, he says, we've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. The good news from God is all about his Son, to whom we owe the obedience of our allegiance. He is the wisest counselor, the most peaceful of princes, the everlasting father, and the mighty God. He is worthy of our obedient allegiance because he's king. He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth and you and me, and he will reign from the river to the ends of the earth. And the word is, we need to obey him. We need to trust him. We need to repent of our sins. We need to be like John did, making straight the way of the Lord. Straighten out your paths by God's grace and help so that you can be rightly related to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your work will be busily working in our hearts. Your spirit will convict that he will ask us, among other things, this question, what are you doing with King Christ, with King Jesus, who is going to come as the mighty God again and the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the mighty Counselor, and over the whole earth, his throne will reign. Let us not trifle with the things that you have shown us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.